Hi, I'm Chantelle. And I'm Matthew. And we're founders of Fifth Place, where our mission is to make the world a better place by enabling the how. Welcome, Welcome to, to our Emotions Matter, Matter Really podcast. podcast. In this podcast, we explore everything about emotions, feelings, and what it is to become and remain emotionally fit. We interrogate the taboo around expressing and talking about emotions and feelings. We talk about all those things we want less of, like stress, anxiety, and burnout, and the things we want more of, like sleep, calm, and self-care. We explore tools, tips and techniques for managing your emotions. We examine what it means to be emotionally fit and why this equals a better quality of life. Hello, hello. So, spring has sprung here. Yay. And uh, with it, warmer weather. And you know, spring usually heralds a time when people are more open uh, and as well a little bit more expectant, maybe a little bit more upbeat and yet here and elsewhere across the world people are feeling very, very contracted, very mm. closed in, very worried, very anxious and depressed. Mm. Yes, that is so. Um, and with World Suicide Prevention Day around the corner, it's on the 10th of September, this podcast is going to be about suicide and you know when I started planning for it I had such a resistance to it. I didn't want to do it. I thought like, oh, what a negative subject. You know, who wants to talk about suicide? Who wants to talk about depression? And then I realized that that's it. That is exactly the point. Not wanting to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about depression we don't want to we don't want to engage with it we just want to you know hide it under the carpet sweep it away and as a result it doesn't get surfaced and that's the very thing that we are going to do today we are going to talk about something that typically people don't want to talk about today we know of too many families that have been affected by suicide mm. and it really has to be one of the most appalling ways to lose someone that you care or love for. Mm. And although the reasons for committing suicide are personal, and there isn't a consensus on uh, why people commit suicide, research has shown that the most prevalent reason comes down to depression. Mm. Many factors can contribute to someone wanting to take their life Apart from depression, financial situations, an inability to manage the way that you feel, overwhelming emotions, hopelessness, loneliness, mm. stress, uh, external circumstances, internal circumstances. Mm. These can all play a role and all contribute to arriving at a place where a person feels like the only choice left is that final choice. Yes. And I thought that we would have a look at a some of the statistics around suicide, some of the global statistics as well as local statistics, and from a, the most re recent report, which is 2019. Now, this information comes from the World Health Organization. 
and they say that more than 700,000 people die as a result of suicide every year. Yes, and for every suicide, there are many, many more people that attempt suicide. And a prior suicide attempt is the single most important risk factor for suicide in the general population. Suicide is the fourth leading cause of death among 15 to 19 year olds. And 77% of global suicides occur in low and middle income countries. And the ingestion of pesticides, hanging and mm. firearms are among the most common methods used to commit suicide around the world. And closer to home, here in South Africa, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, also known as SADAG, has figures of 23 suicides a day that are recorded and 230 serious attempts. Sticking with South Africa, we have the third highest suicide rate in Africa. And culturally, there is denial about depression and the belief that to admit to being depressed is weak. And in more traditional environments, it can be looked at as a person being bewitched. Yes, so an added layer to um, misunderstanding and keeping quiet, uh, which is problematic. So today, what we are going to do with this, this podcast is we're going to talk about a lived experience of suicide ideation and suicide attempts and the learnings that have come out of it. We aren't psychologists or psychiatrists, so we cannot diagnose, but we can model what we believe is the most effective and most important element around suicide and the attempts on one life. And that is about talking and listening around the topic. Matthew, you, have had your lived experience and you may have spoken about it before on this podcast but very briefly but today uh, just to go back to that time and just tell us a little bit about what happened when you were younger and you had thoughts of suicide. Thank you Chantelle. I think it's an important story to tell by way of an example and specifically around some of the realizations that I've had as I've got older relative to the unsuccessfulness of, of the suicide attempts. In other words, I'm really grateful that mm -hmm. it didn't work because I came to realize that we all have gifts, we all have talents, and it's part of our job and responsibility as human beings to find those gifts, talents, and what have you, and then share them with the world. And I wouldn't obviously be sitting here. There wouldn't be the work that we've done that has positively impacted and influenced so many people. Mm. And so really, if we go back to that time, when I was around 16 years old, and it's an interesting story to tell because on the surface, everything was great for me. Mm. I was a good looking young adult. I had the affections of both young adult men and women, as well as some older ones. Uh, I was doing well academically at school. I was doing well sporting wise. I was captain of the swimming team. I'd set a record uh, in the breaststroke, which stood for 10 years and yet it wasn't enough. 
and it comes back to these feelings that I used to carry around with me of not being worthwhile, not being uh, valuable or having value. Mm-hmm. And that can be traced back, or we believe that can be traced back to me being abandoned when I was a young child by effectively both parents. First of all, my mom left me. When you were two? Yes. And we were living in Botswana from South Africa. And then my dad was unable to look after me as a sort of single parent man. And he then decided, and this is the interesting thing, because sometimes we are on the receiving end of other people's choices that are well-meaning or well-intentioned. And yet the meaning that we take out of the situation can be very different. And so my dad took me to live with his sister, my aunt, in England, effectively abandoning me. And the choice that I made, or the part of me that was able to make this choice, decided that if my parents didn't want me, how much could I be worth? How much value could I have as a human being if neither of them wanted me? And that really set the trajectory for my life because thereafter I struggled to show up in any kind of meaningful way. Success constantly eluded me because the minute I got close to success, this part said, well, this isn't who you are. You have no worth. You have no value. How can you possibly attain anything that equals value or that will say you have value? So I would implode and and self-sabotage regularly. And coming back to you as that 16-year-old going on 17, what was happening in your life then? And what led to you considering suicide? Well, I'd done a swimming gala specifically in terms of this is talking into the beginnings of this particular dark time in my life. And I came home and for whatever reason, I felt like I wasn't good enough. And the first thing that I did was go to my room. I had my own room and I remember standing at one end of the room and running as hard and fast as I could, a few meters and smashing myself into the cupboard and trying it again and again as a way to hurt myself, to try and avoid or distract from this gnawing shadowy dark feeling inside that I was actually a fake Mm. because this isn't who I was and subsequent to that I took my math set out found my compass and started to stab myself with it and scrape my arms just so that I could feel something other than this other this horrible feeling inside of me and that was the beginning because regularly I used to do self-harm cutting and uh, the space that I lived in we were living in a double story house I used to roll myself down the stairs occasionally just to hurt myself and the strange thing is that you know all of this happens behind closed doors meaning It happens when I'm by myself, when there's no one there to catch me. And I can't tell you why. And the 
crowning part of all of this contemplation of self-harm and getting closer to the time when I first attempted suicide was taking my mom's partner at the time, taking his gun. And my parents used to regularly go out on a Saturday night and my brother and I would be left at home, not alone, because next door to us lived, it was a housing estate, my, my grandparents. And I would often take the gun and hold it and smell it. And it had a particular metallic smell that the gun oil has also a particular fragrance. And I would put it in my mouth and contemplate pulling the trigger. And the only thing that stopped me was the thought of my grandmother finding me in whatever state I may have been and having to clean it up because that's what she would do. And so thankfully that particular route, you may decide destiny or fate, was sort of ruled out. And this continued for a while and then one day, and I can't exactly say what the trigger was, but I decided that I'd had enough. Again, the feelings that were too overwhelming. I just took what I had available, which was hose pipe and car, and maybe this wasn't the most effective or efficient way, but you know, we, we didn't have Google where you could sort of call up effective ways to die. But I shoved the hose pipe into the exhaust, put it into the window, switched the car on, and hoped to die. And I waited. And before too long, thankfully, my brother came and found me. So your brother was looking for you? I actually don't know. All I know is that where I was parked, he found me. I think I felt ashamed and I felt embarrassed. And all I wanted to do on top of the feelings that I was trying to avoid was run away. I just left, I fled. I literally ran away, ran down the road. I think the car was still running. I have no idea what he did. I have no idea what happened. I just ran and ran and ran. And your brother was younger than you. So you were at the stage, what, 17 years old? Yes. And he's five years younger than you. So yes. he's a 12 year old boy that comes across his brother in a car doing something a bit odd and you dive out, run away and obviously don't know what has actually happened back where the car was, but you are now hot footing it down the road. All I wanted to do was try and put some distance between me and the way that I felt. And as I said, they were compounded by these feelings of shame now. And it's ironic because where are the feelings? They're inside of me, so what am I going to do? Where am I going to run to? And I think it talks a little bit into the space of, you know, somehow the stuff doesn't necessarily make sense. The actions yeah. and behavior don't make sense. No, and that's exact, That's absolutely right. I think they don't make sense. And they can't be rationalized because they don't. And so... I managed to get about 15 kilometers away from home. That's quite a lot. That's quite a far away from home. And I was on the highway 
and again fate interjected because my girlfriend and her mom were driving to her father for the weekend they regularly used to go and visit on the weekend and this was a saturday and they saw me walking at the side of the road and slowed down and insisted i get in the car which i did i spent saturday night there i think they contacted my my mom although i can't be sure and that was really the end of the event but the repercussions of that were such that my mom took me to a GP and he prescribed some medication for me and I remember there were these little pink pills I don't know what they were and I put one in my mouth and decided this wasn't for me I didn't want to be out of control one of the things that I've struggled with is trust specifically trust of people in positions of authority at that stage in my my life I never got drunk I never took drugs I never did anything that was likely to put me in a situation where I would be out of control and so there was no way I was trusting myself to whatever these tablets may do mm -hmm. my mom also enrolled me if that's the right word into the care which later came to be the wrong word of a psychologist okay so she sent you to therapy yes mm -hmm. which is what is which is recommended. I think the therapy sessions played a role. I can't say for sure because my overarching memory of the situation was the psychologist, who was a man, made an inappropriate move on me in what turned out to be my last therapy session because after that I didn't go back and I didn't tell anyone about it either. I don't think I had capacity to try and deal with yet another thing. I mean, who's going to believe me over the word of an esteemed psychologist because he was esteemed. So what did you do? Did you just come out? Had you been to a couple of sessions and then said, I don't want to go anymore? I feigned um, healing. I said, I'm, I'm feeling okay. I don't think I need to go anymore. And... You know, because it's not exactly a cheap service. I think my mom was all too happy to hear that. The only person I told at the time was my girlfriend, because we used to walk there and then she would wait for me and then walk back. And I told her what happened. So it took me a very long time to come to realize the gift in that situation or in that happening. I think I was probably in the region of around post 40 years old somewhere. And I realized that as a result of him behaving in that way, I made a choice in a similar way to the two-year-old making a choice. This particular version of me made a choice that he would never rely on anyone else other than himself to deal with his own stuff. That's you. So you said I would mm, me, rely Matthew. on in nobody else. The 17-year-old Matthew said yeah. that was the last time I... And I mean, it talks to the pattern of mistrust, but this is something that I think is very important is when we go through horrible, challenging situations, it is vital to do the healing work. And once the healing work is done, there is inherent in that challenge, a gift. Mm. And it's as much as it's important to do the healing work, it's also important to find the gift because part of the journey into this work that we do coaching and therapy work around emotional fitness, it talks really about it starts with me.
in the place of taking responsibility for my healing. Yes. Absolutely. But your story's not finished because you attempted, so you had suicide ideation when you were a teenager, you attempted suicide when you were 17, and that wasn't the last time that that happened. It happened again. I think that also I want to do, if this is the right thing, a shout out to one particular person who I just remembered, and it's kind of weird because I know this story, and yet the care of a social worker mm. helped me heal that particular challenge. Yes, that's right. So actually, your mother tried to assist you by getting your medication by a GP. So maybe that's not exactly the right place to go, but she did that. You, you didn't take it, but you didn't tell her. You went to a therapist. It kind of went pear-shaped and you chose to say you were fine. The school intervened in a particular way by assigning a social worker to you. Well, I think not so much others. the school is that this particular person was given to me or entrusted to me by the Department of Education. And I'm not sure how this came about. Uh, maybe the school, because the school actually was unbelievably mm. hard and harsh. When I managed to have the capacity to go back to school because I'd taken some time off school, I was called into the headmaster's office and told sort of in no uncertain terms that I've effectively blown my school career out of the water because any hopes that I had about achieving any kind of senior leadership position is really off the table now. So maybe they are obligated to write reports, who knows, but all I know is that a very kind and a very gentle man showed up in my life. And I think for the first time in a very long time, I experienced a level of unconditional support mm. and unconditional care without any pressure to perform where my mom was quite hard in driving me to achieve, uh, academically achieve in school. So her sort of love kind of came with a little bit of a sting, you know, do better, that kind of stuff. But this guy was just there. Mm. And, you know, we did things together. And I'm really grateful because I think what it did is it helped me rebuild trust in others hmm. and it it was an it was an adult that supported you that was not judgmental of you that as you said wasn't pushing you um and very different to the home and the school environment where the school had said basically sorry for you but the the leadership um opportunities are off the table and you said even the teachers uh were not were sort of not really supportive and you wanted to do well you wanted to be able to achieve you were an intelligent young man and they were putting um well the word you're looking for here is stigma okay, effectively yes. i walked around with a target you know being looked at differently being looked at strangely being avoided the teachers were some of them less than supportive as well what do you think at your age trying this kind of stuff 
And I think what it does is it really also points out people's inability and to manage their discomfort mm. or their lack of understanding about what to do with the way that they feel. And this was in the 80s. So it was at a time where there was absolutely no, or very little, psychosocial support in schools. Basically, it was very focused on academic. And yes, there was extramural, but it was very um, conservative. There wasn't much leeway for anybody that was very different. I think I was really lucky to go to psychotherapy, Mm. um, even though it didn't turn out quite the way that it was meant to. Everything normalized for a little while, and I got to a particular place in my life a few years later. I was 21, going on 22, and my mom met somebody and effectively left and kind of, in a way, broke up the family environment and as a result I think my grandmother suggested that my brother go and live with my dad who was in England Mm -hmm. and she then called her son who was in Canada and then they left and went to Canada and my mom's partner at the time he kind of moved out because it was my mom's house found somewhere to live so she went she did something else So she wasn't with him. So what actually happened is my mom met someone that was 14 years her junior, kind of had maybe a midlife crisis and being fairly self-centered, upped and left and moved out. Almost walked in and said, I've met someone, I'm moving out, goodbye. Mm. And everybody sort of couldn't quite believe what had happened. And so this was... The beginning of another process which would culminate in me down the line attempting suicide again but what had happened is as i said everybody kind of found their own way except for me well you were left at the home to pack up and close and 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 move stuff out yes. and you were trying to study you were you were in your second year of university at that well, that, time that put paid to any kind of continuing studies because eventually i just couldn't manage my mom's partner had paid for me to study at university Mm. Uh, he also paid for me to finish my schooling at a a different school as well relative to the experiences that I'd had and I did really well there which opened up opportunities to go to university but by this time I was starting to struggle to manage the situation I actually had no means of transport no I, money. No money, no income, no job. And I had uh, nowhere actually to live because my mom had sold the house and she'd moved in with this guy and there was no space there. My brother had gone to England, my grandparents back to Canada and my mom's partner had started effectively a new life. Mm. Ex-partner. Yes, ex-partner. And so here... Again, in some ways. And you were how old? 20. 20. That's right. Fate again kind of intervened in a strange way. And in the housing estate, I had become friends with a woman who was 34. So 14 years, ironically, my senior. So your friendship developed into a relationship. You went to live with her. She invited you to live with her. Well, this is what I mean by fate intervening is... She thought you were gay, and so she thought it was a nice... 
She was doing you a favor. You were nice guy, yes. nice to chat to. Well, as a result, and she offered me a place to stay. And then yeah. in, in that, we kind of grew closer and then eventually ended up having a relationship. And that was when I started to look at my options and dropped out of university because I had no money. And also my dad at this stage, because my brother had been there for a while, made an offer for me to go and live there. Okay, so you were living with this woman uh, for a while, so you were able to sort of bring yourself, sort of ground yourself, find a space where you felt a bit grounded, but you had you had dropped out of university, you couldn't afford it anymore. Obviously, the time that it had taken to, to have your life implode and then settle again had completely wiped out the opportunity to continue those studies in any way there wasn't any finance. Um, you'd found respite with this woman, but at this stage, your dad then intervened and said, rather come and live with me over in the UK. My dad had emigrated back to the UK in 1985, and I think that he had always wanted for the possibility of us to rebuild our relationship, which is partly why I made the offer. And this woman was very generous in terms of inviting me into her home and effectively in some ways, many ways, looking looking out for me. I got some part-time jobs, waitering and bartending, but it wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. And I decided that, you know, maybe the grass was proverbially greener. In the UK? Yes. Okay, so you decided to go over So and... I went to the UK mm -hmm. and, you know, it's a culture shock. <laughs> First of all, the weather. And secondly, you know, they're not really like your people, if you like, because they're not. They are their own people. Yes, and, and you were, but you were going into a space that was supposed to be like family. And how was that? Well, that was a challenge. My stepmom, uh, rightly so, I mean, all of a sudden you've gone from being in a, a space of two, her and my dad, and all of a sudden there's these two strangers that now live in the house and she struggled with that. My brother and my father were very sort of close, they'd always been close. And so I felt like a spare wheel. Mm -hmm. And having no real qualification, I attempted jobs but could only get real menial things. And so again, started to perhaps rue the, the choice that I'd made and started again to feel these feelings of unworthiness and feeling like I was worthless because my life was literally bleak. And the woman that I had left behind in South Africa decided to rekindle our relationship mm -hmm. long distance. And eventually that culminated in me leaving England and going back. And going back. And so going back into a space that I thought was going to be supportive and loving and generative, one day we had a massive, massive fight. And because she had some, some medicine, I grabbed a bottle, slugged the whole thing down and went and lay down and waited to die. What you haven't said, though, is that you came back in a state of depression. You were depressed. You were so skinny that you couldn't sit in a bath. 
So you were not just coming back and then having a big fight and saying, I want to get over it. You had gone over, you'd come out of a very difficult situation in South Africa where your life had imploded, you'd found some stability, offered the opportunity for something maybe generative over in the UK, it didn't work out. And it just got you to slide deeper and deeper into this dark place. You were not eating properly, you were not looking after yourself, you didn't feel supported. And then there was again the opportunity to come back, come back. And you did, but you came back, not a bright, vibrant, healthy, strong young man. You came back tired, depressed, skinny, feeling worthless again. And you came back into an environment that wasn't expecting that. This person, this woman, wasn't expecting this. She was expecting you to be self-motivated. She was expecting you to go out there and, and support yourself. And you were not in that place. No, I think by comparison, I had really slid into a really dark place. And when you recount it like that, the Matthew that left versus the Matthew that came back. I mean, I recall trying to sit in the bath, as you mentioned, and I couldn't sit comfortably because I was so thin that my bones were actually sort of sticking out and mm -hmm. I couldn't sit on the hard surface of the bath. And maybe that probably puts pressure on everything. And as I said, it just one day exploded. And I decided that, well, I couldn't do this anymore. I had run the tank dry. And so all I wanted to do was go to sleep and never wake up. Yes. And so that's why, why I did it. I took the pills and waited and waited and waited. And eventually, not understanding what was going on, got up and went to her and said, what gives? I just, what sort of, again, feeling a little bit of embarrassment and shame because now this thing had failed again, sort of said, what are these? And she said, oh, no, they're actually nothing. They're not what's on the bottle. I've taken the contents out and I've just kept the capsule. So I had effectively taken a whole bottle of nothing. Empty capsules. That is correct. So I didn't say what I tried to do, but again, it felt like I'd been offered another chance. And I decided to take this chance. And maybe it sounds a bit trite based on, you know, the state that I was in, but really I thought to myself, okay, if this is the space that I'm in and I've tried this again, and this hasn't worked again, then maybe, just maybe, and here's that beautiful word, hope, gleamed and flickered, because maybe there is something here that I need to do. I took some steps to find a job, which I did. You found a place to stay. I found a place to stay, ironically, by this time, <laughs> with my mother. But it was under different circumstances. And, you know, I learned a little bit about boundaries in terms of how we lived together. So we shared expenses and what have you. And really, it set me on the trajectory. And that's not to say that everything was roses thereafter. By no means was it roses at all. I mean, you know, there are numerous events that happened as well as I worked through this particular challenge of feeling worthless and valueless many many times after that 
my life imploded as a result of me needing to match that belief that I had about myself. But at no point since then have I felt the desire or the want or the drive to even consider or ideate around suicide, let alone contemplate it. So what would you say, Matthew, having had those experiences, what would you say with the lessons that came out of that for you? What would you like to tell those that potentially are feeling hopeless, like it would be better for them not to be on this earth? Sitting now in the age that you are looking back, what can you take out of it? I think there are three things that I can take out of it. One is that it's important to do the healing work because in the healing work, as I said earlier, there is a gift. It's almost like you have to mine the rock before you can get the diamond. And you know, it doesn't, it's not always given up easily mm. because that diamond really will inform aspects of your character and give you insights into who you are as a person. The second thing is that as dark as it gets, there actually are people who care for you. So that social worker, the first time I attempted suicide, he was a bright shining light for me. If you look around you, find those people who do care because they are there. And then the third one, and this one to me is potentially a bit philosophical and you certainly can't relate to this when you're in this dark place, is that you are unique. I am unique, you Chantel are unique, you listening to this are unique. And in that uniqueness, you have, as I mentioned earlier, talents, abilities, gifts, ways of being that are only yours. And it is your responsibility to bring them into the world, to express them into the world. And maybe your gift is a talent for painting, drawing, dancing, laying bricks, sweeping the road, it doesn't matter how mundane it appears. Maybe it's more lofty, you know, building rockets. Mm. It doesn't matter. The thing is you need, the world needs you to express your talent, to express your ability. And I realized that when we created our emotion regulation process and started down the road of teaching people the importance of emotional fitness. Because the countless lives that we have positively impacted with our work would not have happened had I been successful at committing suicide. Valuable to be able to look back, painful to have to recount. And I think, although we said at the beginning we're not psychologists or psychiatrists and we do not diagnose, I do believe that it is important for people to know what to look out for. As Matthew said, depression is by far the, the, the highest um, instigator, the highest, uh, most prevalent cause of people wanting to uh, take their own lives. And so really recognizing what that is in yourself or in others is useful to know. And, and yes, exactly. And, you know, I think that where we're going to go with this is we're going to share some, there's nine of them, nine things to look out for. And, you know, 
maybe my situation would have been different if people around me were aware of these and there could have been interventions. Yes, sooner. Sooner. Yes. Because as a 16, 70 year old, 17 year old, and as a 21, 20 year old, I felt like it was all on me. Mm. And I was hiding it. I was doing this alone. I was soldiering on. Whereas if there was some awareness of these things we're going to share, maybe other people could have looked at me on the outside and said, no, this isn't right. This bloke, he doesn't look right. And perhaps challenging me with these may have then elicited an intervention earlier. Yes. When my daughter was in high school, she went through a very dark patch, very dark. And we watched this in complete, yes, feeling quite... um, uh, rudderless and, and out of control and we wanted to do something for her but every time we spoke to her there was always the no I'm fine, no I'm fine, no I'm fine leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone and her brother's school actually sent out a circular based on a really a tragic event that had happened at the school they sent out a circular which listed these elements around what to look for if a person is getting depressed and my daughter found this list I left it out for her on purpose and she found it. And she came to us afterwards and she said, I read that circular and I think I'm depressed. And as a result of that, we were able to together decide on what the best course of action would be for her to start on the journey to recovery. And she did recover. She was able to take responsibility for that too and and play a part in it, which I believe was really important. Um, So knowing what to look for, for yourself or for others, is a good place to start. And so we're going to share these symptoms and understanding that you, and we'll share the link for this, you can even do take this little, these questions have been converted into a little quiz. So you can even take the quiz and depending mm. on the score you get, you can get a gauge of how depressed. We're not necessarily advocating that everyone must go out and see, oh, am I depressed or not depressed? But it's just tools. It's information. Mm. It's knowledge. And what you choose to do with it, well, that's that's up to you. But really, this is something that's very, very useful. Yes. So would you like to go through them? And uh, also, it's not that you have every single one of these symptoms. It's about having at least five of them and over a period of two weeks, continually. That says something about the fact that this might be depression. So a depressed mood or irritability most of the day or nearly every day. Decreased interest or pleasure in most activities most of the day. A significant weight change or change in appetite. So that's the third one. The fourth one is change in sleep patterns, either sleeping really long or not sleeping. And then number five, a change in activity. Again, either more activity, so levels of agitation go up, or levels of slowness, sort of slowing things down. Loss of energy. Or fatigue, yes. Yes, loss of energy or fatigue. And then number seven, feelings of worthlessness or excessive and inappropriate guilt. So that maybe says that I've been depressed or had been depressed for a large part of my life. And then number eight, diminished ability to think or concentrate. Your levels of indecisiveness go up. And then number nine, 
thoughts of death or suicide. And remember, it's not any one of these that is going to determine whether you are in a critical state or not. Understand that as human beings, we will have the highs and we will have the lows. Just because you feel low today doesn't mean that you are clinically depressed. These symptoms, uh, you, these symptoms will be used to determine over a period of time, if they stay there over a period of time and you go to a professional, they will be able to determine if there is um, a, a diagnosis or not. So it's just about being aware of it and being attuned to it and knowing if you need to put your hand up either for yourself or for another. And we've included links in the description for this podcast to hotlines, to helplines. If you need additional direction, then please, you know, reach out or connect with us and we'll point you in the right direction. Mm. Really important that you speak up, that you talk about it, and uh, that if somebody speaks to you about how they're feeling, that you take it seriously and you listen. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to my story and here's hoping that it helps. Mm, indeed. And we've come to that time of the podcast, poem time. I look forward to hearing Chantel in the context of what we've shared or what I've shared specifically. What sort of poem have you chosen for us today? Well, I, when we were talking about this podcast, we spoke about how hope, how that little flicker of hope is so important in our lives. And it immediately made me think of the poem by Emily Dickinson called Hope is the thing with feathers. Now, Emily Dickinson was a prolific poet, but uh, much of her life she spent in isolation. She was a bit eccentric and she was really little, little known during her lifetime, but she wrote over 1,800, 1,800 poems. Um, and here in this poem, she writes about hope, hope being like a bird with feathers, singing courageously, in the face of many obstacles. And you know, hope is something that we all need. And if we have hope, we can withstand so much. So here it is. Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Well, thank you. Mm. Thank you, thank you. I think that it's important we cultivate a sense of hope because with hope comes possibility. Yes, and know that there is always that little fire, that little flame of hope sitting somewhere. And if each of us can cultivate that in ourselves and with another, we will be giving ourselves and others a huge gift.
so we've come to the end of the podcast and time to say farewell and again from me Chantal be kind and be gentle to yourselves and until we meet again bye for now from me Matthew thank you for listening and remember do the work do the healing find the gift express your talents and cultivate the hope Until next time, bye for now. If you enjoyed this podcast and haven't done so already, please subscribe or follow us. And you can find out more about what we do by going to our website, fifth.place. Yes, that's all it is. Five, the number five, th dot place. And because we're all about emotional fitness here at Fifth Place, we have a number of ways that you can build your emotional fitness. You can connect with us for emotional fitness coaching. You can take an emotional fitness course called How to Master Your Emotions. Or alternatively, attend an online emotional fitness class. And all of these links are in the description for this particular episode. Mm, And if this podcast was a value to you and you'd like to match that value, then make a donation. It will certainly support us in being able to do this work more in communities that don't have the means. Again, the link is in the description of the podcast.